At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The shame and the attempt to control weight really keeps so many people stuck and they just don't even realize it. You know, I, they think they're doing the healthy thing and uh, it just isn't effective. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio and this is episode number 192. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today, we have Dr. Sean Hondorp, who is a board-certified clinical health psychologist. I'm gonna tell you more about her in just a bit, but thank you, all of you who have voted for Veggie Doctor Radio for the Veggie Awards that's hosted by Veg News Magazine. Did you know that my podcast, Veggie Doctor Radio, has been selected as one of the top podcasts of the year? If you agree, could you do me the favor and please vote for it? If you go to vegnews.com forward slash veggie dash awards dash 2022, you can vote for it. It's Towards the end of the category list, I think it's category number 57, and it's like on page six or seven of the survey. But it's really fun to take the survey because then you get to see all of the amazing restaurants and products there are out there for vegans, a lot of yummy stuff. Thank you, all of you have already voted for my podcast. You warm my heart and I appreciate you so much. Also, thank you for being a loyal listener and coming back week after week after week. I really appreciate you being here and remember that we make this content for you. So keep us informed. What do you wanna hear? What do you wanna learn more about? What are you curious about? What do you still have questions about? You can email me, yami, Y-A-M-I, at dryami.com. That is spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com. Okay, so let's talk about Dr. Sean Hondorp. She is a PhD and is a board-certified clinical health psychologist and health behavior expert. She earned her doctorate from Drexel University in Philadelphia and completed her pre-doctoral internship and fellowship in health psychology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. 
She has a top-rated podcast called Motivation Made Easy, Body Respect, True Health, where she outlines effective approaches to improve health and well-being by looking at how research and real-world experience collide via conversation and personal stories. She has unique training and experience doing research and patient care in the fields of weight management and eating disorders at top-rated hospitals and universities around the country including, but not limited to, Michigan State University, University of Chicago Eating Disorders Program, Drexel University, Penn Center for Eating and Weight Disorders, and Rush University Medical Center. She lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with her husband and two kids and a pug named Teddy. Her dream vacation day is hiking along a lake surrounded by mountains, holding a warm cup of coffee, followed by a delicious dinner and a soak in a hot tub with an ice-cold IPA. I think she could hang out with my husband because I think that sounds like his dream day as well. I do not like beer. And I tried for so long to acquire the taste for alcohol and I finally gave up. Is that weird? I know it's weird because I felt like socially like it would be easier for me to just like alcohol, but I don't. And I stopped trying because it does not align with my values, which is something that we're going to talk about with Sean today. So thank you all for being here. And now on to this magnificent conversation. Dr. Sean Hondorp, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here, and honestly, it's an honor. I've enjoyed your work for a long time, so I'm, I'm so excited. Well, we got to know each other a little bit because I got to be a guest on your podcast. We had a blast and a really great discussion. So this is round two now on my podcast. So thanks for joining me. And I am really excited to dive in because you're a psychologist. But before we talk more about psychology of eating and body and making healthy habits, I want to know what attracted you to the fields of psychology? How did you end up here? Yeah, it was fun to reflect back on that. So psychology has always been broadly interesting to me due to a desire to help, but um, I was actually in college, really interested in psychology, nutrition, and health early on. But what really, I had a great mentor right in the early undergrad years, an excellent mentor in research. And she would basically trained me in research. And I was really excited about this idea of like learning about truth um, and, mm. and figuring out, can we design studies? And a lot of my studies, I've actually done a honors thesis, master's, and dissertation were all about randomly assigning and changing only one variable so we could really figure out cause. And I just mm. got really excited about that. And so I, most of my career, I wanted to be a researcher and that changed and I'm not, you know, I'm involved in research, but I never did the research track. But um, that was the initial intrigue. Um, and you know, along with that, though I used to be very ashamed of this, I, I certainly think I was also studying things to try to help myself. Um, but I'm it's very freeing now to say like, yeah, that was a part of it. But the, the research part of psychology was um, really intriguing to me because of this idea of how can we help people with truly evidence-based effective um, information. Yeah, research is so fun. I delved a little bit into it. I don't think I have the stamina to be a researcher for a lifetime, like some of these amazing researchers out there that spend decades, like 30, 40 years on one research question. And I'm so glad they do what they do, but I'm really not that detail oriented. And I have like shiny object syndrome. So I'm like, oh, this is fun. Oh, this is fun. This is fun. So it'd be hard to yes. like, you know, stay consistent for so long. 
You mentioned mm-hmm. you mentioned that you feel like you were attracted to it in part because you wanted to help yourself. Tell me a little bit more about that. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was deeply struggling. By the time I went to college, I had been deeply struggling with my relationship with food for mm-hmm. about two years at that point. It really started for me around 16, and um, I I felt bad about that, but yet I was I knew that there was a better way to feel and to be in your body. And, um, I wanted to solve that for myself and, and other people too. So I think it was very infused and I think it's, it's been freeing now to just be like, yeah, that was part of it. Um, and that's okay. And that's often what draws us to what's interesting to us, but it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Absolutely. And I understand I, and there's definitely parts of my history where sometimes I'm just like, I wish, that never happened. I, I wish I had never gone on that first diet when I was nine years old. But at the same time, we wouldn't be who we are today without those experiences. And it's those experiences and those desires that fuel our passions, not just to help ourselves, but once we learn what helps us to spread it to other people. So even though some of those choices some of you know the directions we took in life have been painful and maybe in some ways regrettable they make us who we are and we couldn't be the helpers we are today we couldn't be the guides we are today without them but i i can relate definitely to that Mm -hmm. feeling because i've been there before but this brings us perfectly into my next question which is your history with disordered eating. So what do you think, if, if there's one thing or a series of things or just cir- circumstances that may have triggered or prompted it, can you tell us more about that? How did you come to the place where you were able to stop the cycle and how has it informed your current practice today? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, I would say more broadly sort of diet culture was a big part of it. I I was a pretty perfectionistic child. I grew up in dance. I don't think that helped, but it wasn't like that that caused it. What really prompted it was ultimately puberty and and normal weight gain. And then Mm -hmm. sort of, for lack of a better term, freaking out about that and saying like, no, I need to look this way and sort of internalizing this idea of like the thin ideal. And and then very quickly, like I went on some sort of silly diets, like I think my first one was maybe like some slim fast thing. And then very quickly developed binge eating. My body was like, no, <laughs> you need to eat more than that. And so that really prompted, I ended up counting about 13 years of just like the diet binge cycle is what I call it. But I, I would say that like my my struggle, it wasn't particularly obvious. Most people didn't really know that it was happening. I never was very low weight. I gained some weight over time because of probably the stress of dieting. Um, But I was never really doing anything entirely very restrictive. In fact, I was uh, sort of afraid of ruining my metabolism. So I was always doing these things that like we were telling people, we meaning I was then in the field later Mm -hmm. on in the behavioral weight loss field, we were telling people to do 1200 calories. And, and I was, you know, doing that, I was doing that. i would never go below that. And I was, uh, I always had a pretty healthy relationship with exercise. So I loved running and I got really into it in grad school. And when I ran, I would eat more and I never limited any foods. So I think the disordered eating cycle can look different and it's all kind of on a continuum. And I would, I fell on sort of 
more severe binge eating at times. And then I had some really healthy years in there, but um, it never was fully healed until a couple crucial things I think really helped me as I've reflected. Um, I actually listened to a podcast um, when I was in grad school about this woman. um, And she kind of talked a little bit about intuitive eating without using the terms. Um, and, and it was still weight focus, which was interesting, but she shared her story of really like being in the depths of like despair with her binge eating and then coming out on the other side. And she talked a lot about like, how does food make you feel over time? And for me, I was still deeply ashamed of my struggle, but I was listening to her and it was very useful for me to be, be like, oh, wow, this person who I consider very accomplished and I, I like, and she has a podcast, she struggled. And, and hearing that was um, pivotal. And it was also for me, I think one of the first, I was in grad school at that time studying behavioral weight management, studying obesity prevention, studying all these things. And it planted the seed, like, I think we're, we're doing this wrong. Like, I think what we're doing isn't effective and there's a better way to help people feel good in their bodies. And, mm-hmm. um, and then it was a couple years later, I read the book Intuitive Eating. Um, I actually listened to it. This is at, at this point, I was living in Chicago doing some internship and uh, fellowship training at Rush in Chicago. And, um, and that planted the seed again of like really trying to unhook from the weight focused piece. Um, and then I think it was little bit after it didn't quite I did like one more last ditch diet effort <laughs> so I uh I tried Weight Watchers one more time it was my during the time I was doing my first uh mar- first and only marathon um and I was just like this is this doesn't make sense and I finally let it go so I I think of progress as it was kind of like up and down up and down but like overall making some progress and then finally like no, you don't have to control your weight. And that was very, very freeing for me. Um, and in terms of how it's informed my practice, I think now I left um, the formal healthcare a year ago. I do private practice of my own and I have my podcast. And I'm just, I've been talking about sort of not focusing on weight and weight inclusive work for a while now um, within the healthcare system. But I think I'm just a little bit more vocal now on like, hey, the shame and the attempt to control weight really keeps so many people stuck and they just don't even realize it. You know, they think they're doing the healthy thing kind of similar to me Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, just isn't effective. Yes. Uh, What a journey. And, you know, at the beginning of this, you mentioned, you know, I wasn't doing anything severe. Basically, you didn't have a clinically diagnosable eating disorder. You weren't being hospitalized. You weren't like in some kind of restricted environment where they were refeeding you. You know, like it wasn't that the image that we picture of somebody with an eating disorder, yet your situation is super common. I mean, this is, there's so many people struggling with what you struggled with every day in our country and the westernized world. So many people that are right there dancing on the edge of this disordered eating, controlling what they eat, body dissatisfaction, and it affects mood, it affects motivation, it takes energy away from other parts of our lives where we could be dedicating energy to. So it is a huge problem because there's so many 
many people that are dancing there on this edge and it's really stealing their attention from other things, even though it's not that picture we see, we, you know, we think in our minds of like this, like skeletal person that's like barely hanging on to life because they refuse to eat. You know, that's, that's what we think yeah. is what it is, but it's not, it's so much in between. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that's absolutely. important to acknowledge for the listeners because there's even people that are in larger size bodies that nobody believes them that they have a super restrictive relationship with food and are suffering oh, yeah. so much. So I think I think it's really important to understand that. So yeah. yeah, I think that's a very important point. I always talk about it as like this continuum and and I did meet criteria for binge eating for sure for parts of those years and sometimes I didn't and and you know, it's not I'm a psychologist, I have to diagnose, but the most significant thing, the most common diagnosis I have is eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Mm-hmm. It's just the catch-all category. And and we have binge eating disorder now, so more people fit into that, but a lot of people fall, like you said, somewhere on that continuum and it can be incredibly life impairing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, yeah, often getting missed. And when we, you know, we have these criteria to diagnose people, it's just a tool. I think that's mm-hmm. important to remember too. It's just a tool and it's somewhat arbitrary too, right? Because we have to get together every few years and look at the research and be like, all right, is this still what we think it should be? Should we include this aspect? Should we take out this aspect? Yeah. But I think the thing that I want everybody to think about and remember is how much is it affecting your life? How much is it affecting your well-being? How much is it stealing away your joy regardless of whether you meet five different, you know, check boxes of this and this, if it's affecting you, if it's hurting you, then there's a problem there that should be addressed and, you know, reach out for help if you feel like you need help. So I think you just brought up such an important point because I was in that for decades and 13 years, that's so long. So many people are in there for decades and decades and decades struggling, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you said that you feel like a lot of this was just diet culture and the thin ideal, and it's hard because it's impossible to escape it, right? I mean, if you ever leave your house, you're going to be exposed to it. There's the billboards, of course, television, magazines, social media, forget it. I mean, like there's no way to be on social media and not be exposed to this thin ideal. So how do you reconcile you know, this urge, this very strong urge that everybody has to be a certain body size, whether it's the thin ideal or sometimes for some people, they want to be bigger and bulkier than maybe their genetic potential. But also the fact that we have this just very predominant fat phobia, this medical bias against larger bodied people And yet there's still millions and millions of people that are running to the bookshelves, running to whatever weight loss program. And it's like this big treadmill, you know, of the thin ideal, but people feeding into it because they, they want it. How do we, how do we reconcile all of those things? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I think it's about helping people. I think it's about, I'm obsessed with talking about autonomy and an informed choice, but I think ultimately it comes down to helping people understand that it's not really about the thing that you want, the weight loss per se, it's about the feeling that you want or that you think you will have if you 
lose weight. And I, I will back up and say that like I work with people primarily, I used to work in bariatric surgery and weight loss surgery and my, I've, I work more with persons in larger bodies, but, and they'll often, so I, I, the reason I'm backing up is to say like, I always tell them I'm not in your body and I don't know exactly how your body feels. So it's not just about, I want this to have this this social acceptance and, and to feel loved and confident. Sometimes they're like, no, Sean, I, I really feel physically better, less pain or something. So it's, it's all about exploring with that person and helping them to unpack what is actually about the weight, if anything, and what is m- much more often about the, the feelings they want it when they that they think they will get if they have a smaller body. And a lot of that is, like you said, so tied up with fat phobia and, and weight bias and all of that. We're just bombarded. And, and people, it's so ubiquitous and everywhere that um, some people are pretty aware of it now. There's more discussions about it. But I think a lot of times people don't even realize that health and weight have become so interlinked. And parsing that apart for people is a very empowering conversation. So um, it's a nuanced conversation <laughs> um, because there's just so many messages that they're getting, I have to lose weight to improve this health condition. And a lot of times that's, there's many other ways that we can improve said health condition without weight loss. So we just have to parse apart what is actually driving the effect that they're looking for and how can we help them get there with um, the tools that we have. And, and that's where the autonomy piece comes in, meaning these are the options we have and you get to choose and, and helping them explore what feels best for them. I love that. And that's such an important part of coaching too, is putting the control back in your client's seat. You know, they're the one in charge. They're the ones that can choose their goals, what they want. And then we just help guide and walk them through it, uh, hold up the mirror for them to help them understand what's happening in their journey. But I agree with you so much that the association, the link between health and weight, we've done such a fabulous job, I'm being sarcastic here, a fabulous job in the healthcare industry of putting those together that now it's almost like if you even hint that you could have health, well-being, and longevity without being in a certain BMI range, people are like, that's impossible. Like, you're crazy. Like, how's that even a thing, you know? Because we have associated it for so long. And as a health and wellness coach, I struggle with that too with my clients that they're doing so, so, so good. They're feeling great. Everything is good. And then they get to this point where they're like, I, I just don't know. I just feel like if I don't lose weight, I'm not going to be healthy. But what does that mean? What what does that mean to you? Because all their markers are great, blood pressure, everything's good. They're feeling good, but it's still, it's so ingrained in our beliefs that you still have this piece that you just can't quite let go. Even if you've let go of the whole, you know, like I'm feeling more satisfied with my body and I feel more comfortable with my body image, that health piece really just hangs on really tight, you know? Yes, they are so interwoven and it's so like, and and people I think are very convinced, like it is about wanting to be healthy, but again, what does health really mean? And sometimes health is, well, not sometimes health is very tied with social acceptance. So that's the other piece that it's so hard to like, sometimes when people say I want to be healthier, it's because they want to feel more accepted in the world. And it's, um, that's why I, I love the kind of motivation theory that I kind of fall back on which is 
self-determination theory, and it's the idea that long-term habit change is facilitated by these three key psychological needs, one of which is a sense of belonging. So when we feel like we belong, we're able to thrive and make whatever shifts we want to. So it's just so intimately tied um, for many reasons. Yeah, because we're tribal. We're, we we want to be part of the group. That's what humans mm -hmm. are. We're not these lone wolves out there by ourselves. We need to feel like we're connected and we're part of a team and we've got each other's back. And you're right, I think, especially in my community being in the plant-based community there's a lot of health ism you know and that's something i didn't even know was a thing <laughs> until like a year or so ago like wow yeah. it's true we really do say statements and make implications that those that aren't quote healthy or aren't interested in making changes to be more healthy and i'm putting all this in air quotes for all that you are listening and not watching that, that that's an individual problem, that that's their problem and that maybe they're a little bit less because of that, you know, less it's worthy. character flaw. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's something we need to be aware of because we're becoming more and more aware of our biases and that's one of those that just everybody's taken for granted. Like, yeah, of course, everybody should want to be more healthy. Everybody should be completely in control of their health and if you're not, that's your problem. There's something wrong with you, mm -hmm. you know? So, yes, yes, it is. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the self-determination theory since you brought it up and how can sure. we specifically begin to apply it to behavior change? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's such an, it's, it's not complex, but there's, there's a couple pieces to self-determination theory and I'll, I'll back up and say it's um, a really well-studied theory that has been studied across cultures, across almost every like behavior domain. So it's, we're applying it to health here, but it is applied in education, sports performance, motivation for child behavior. It's, it's really, it's been studied in lab studies and um, observational studies. So it's, it's just great. Um, I love, I love falling back on it. Um, and, and really what it's looking at is we're not motivated or not motivated. We are motivated. We have different types of motivation for different behaviors. And so they break down several different types of behaviors, um, like external and internal, if we want to sort of uh, categorize them. I won't go through each one, but we're sh wanting to shift away from external, what I call should or shame-based motivation to internal autonomous motivation, because that's going to help. That's basically predictive of long-term change. So if you want to do something long-term, like develop healthy habits, you would want to have autonomous motivation. But to do that, we have to unpack where the shoulds and the external motivation comes from. So often diet culture and all these things we're talking about would be examples of you know, when we want to, we feel like we should want to eat healthy and we should want to do all these things. Um, certainly, like you said, healthism um, could put that pressure on us. Um, and, and so we want to unpack that first and ex explore where that's coming from. Shame very much falls into that, right? So um, that would be something going back to my example, right? Like I was very feeling very ashamed of why what I was doing wasn't working, why I was binge eating. And so we have to kind of unpack, you know, that and understand it. But to move towards this 
internal autonomous motivation, there's really two main types. One is you do the mode, you do the behavior because it's intrinsically val valuable to you. Something about the behavior is intrinsically rewarding, challenging, interesting, fun. Um, we enjoy it. So an example would be an exercise that you just love that um, I know when you came on my podcast, you mm -hmm. talked about exercise for you is intrinsically motivating. You would do it regardless of if anyone ever gave you any rewards for it. If your body never changed, you would still do it, right? And then um, the other type is uh, value-based motivation or they, we call it integrated motivation. So that's you do something. Maybe you don't always love it. Um, for me, example of this is probably cooking, although I've getting a little bit more to intrinsically liking it, but I really do it because I, it's consistent with the mom that I want to be is someone who cooks and I try to cook plant-based mm -hmm. as much as I can um, because that's consistent with my values of, of nourishing my body and my, my family's body in that way. Um, so even if I don't always love it. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family dryami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. Those are kind of a breakdown of the types, but then the question is, how do we shift, right, um, to this internal? And um, that's where we talked a little bit about just like understanding the factors, but going back to what I mentioned earlier. So across all these domains that have been studied, there's three key psychological needs that set up sort of the environment for autonomous motivation. And I already mentioned belonging or a sense of relatedness is often what they call it. Um, autonomy, which is just freedom of choice, freedom from excessive pressure to behave in a certain way, and then um, competence, and so feeling effective. So those needs when we're setting ourselves into environments where we're setting up uh, those needs, that would be predictive of autonomous motivation. So, um, you know, they, a nice, like, I think so much of what I've, I've, I've listened to your podcast for a long time. I think you're creating a community where we're building competence and efficacy with plant-based eating, but not pressuring. I've never gotten that sense when I listen to your podcast, like you need to do this, right? That would take away autonomy. Um, so that would be another example. Yeah. Oh, that's just a, it's beautiful. And I've never heard it explained this way. I know I've read about it lots of times, but I love how you break it down because as you help somebody work through this and figure out what it is that they value and what it is that makes them feel good, there might be some things that they just completely stop doing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like say that you come from a family of of marathon runners and everybody's running marathons and then you feel like, oh, I guess I live in this family so I should be running marathons, but running doesn't feel good to you and it's not exciting and you don't value it, but you've been doing it and then you realize as you go through this thing, actually, 
I don't want to do this. So you stop doing it, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of things that we do in life that way because of the shoulds, right? We have this oh, pressure yeah. from family, from society that we should do something, but it doesn't feel good to us and it doesn't align with our values. So that's an example of how this theory might actually help you determine what are some things that you might be able to stop doing too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Freeing up space, um, by saying no or stopping things is crucial with like clarifying values. It's a clarifying values is something that um, even probably before learning about self-determination theory, I learned in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a type of therapy and um, it's, it's critical and it's, Mm -hmm. and I do it often to stepping back at this phase of my life, what's important. And it's a, it's a process, but it's very important. I think it can be applied to parenting a lot too, because I think there's a lot of things in parenting that we might do because we think that's what we should do. I always bring up the crafting thing because I've never been a crafty parent (laughs) and I felt really bad about it for a long time until I finally accepted. I've never liked crafts. I cannot sustain my attention on crafts and just because I don't like crafts, it doesn't make me a bad mom. So, you know, it's like little <laughs> things like that, that we're just like oh, carrying around yeah. all this guilt and shame about stuff we don't need to be, you know? Oh my gosh. There's so many things. Yeah. I'm trying to, th- there's many examples that come to mind with me and parenting, but um, one of them is like getting my kids a lot of stuff, which is weird. Cause you get mixed messages, get them stuff, yes. don't get them stuff. But I've given my, we've given ourselves permission to like get a lot less things now and and like they don't have this big mound of presents but under the tree and that's okay and yeah it's freeing yeah no i'm with you too we practice minimalism and i've been really proud of that but this year my kids they're 12 and 16 for some reason i started feeling a lot of guilt because we got to the point where we don't even put up a tree anymore just because the stress of me taking down the tree after Christmas is like too much and nobody ever helps me. And I'm just like, I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) So I was like, am I ruining their childhood? And they're going to go to therapy because they didn't have a Christmas tree. And so if I asked them, I was like, are y'all like super sad that we don't have a Christmas tree? And they're like, eh. And I'm like, okay, phew, I'm good. (laughs) I'm off the hook. (laughs) That is hilarious. It makes me think because I'm picturing myself like every year just like lugging up this tree, this fake tree from our basement, sort of just sort of feeling annoyed about it. Seriously. (laughs) That's great. Well, let's Uh, use that and talk about why is it so hard for humans to change their behavior? We know we want to do it all the time. Of course, we, you know, we just passed the new year and that's a great time for people to feel like they want to reset and they want to set all these resolutions. This is going to be the year where I, you know, perfect and I do everything I want to do. But yeah. we know that it doesn't take very long before that falls off and we're right back to where we were. So why is it so difficult? Yeah, I think it boils down to change is immensely uncomfortable when we're doing it right. And we want we think about we got to feel motivated and we got to feel good and we want to be positive. And so I guess there's a little bit of like a toxic positivity (laughs) flair to sometimes the way we approach motivation for habit change. But the reality is that when we are doing this, like going back to this values clarification. So I've, I value, I've, I've clarified, this is what's important to me in my life. And this is what I want to make space for being a, you know, a mom who shows up for her kids in this way, for example, because that's probably my example. And then tying that to behaviors is kind of, we do this in 
I guess one-on-one work that I do with people, but also in my program, there's a, always going to be a disconnect because mm-hmm. none of us are always living 100% with our values all the time. So that's uncomfortable. Like to look at, so we'll often look at like, okay, what does it look like behaviorally to show up as the mom you want to be? Well, maybe it's I consistently take time for myself and, you know, exercise or, you know, nourish my body in a way that feels good. So I'm emotionally present. And what does it mean to be emotionally present? Well, I pick them up from school on time. I stop working. And so you can operationalize it. And then you have to look back at the, even just the last week or two. Well, how often have I been doing that? And it's uncomfortable because we look back and usually we're not measuring up fully and that's normal. And so it's painful though. <laughs> so it's not fun to look back and be like, Ooh, cause if you have anything like me, you're like, I'm your first thought is I'm failing. And then you have to check that and say, okay, no, you're not failing, but you aren't fully living consistent with how you want to in this area. And then, and then from there we can make a plan to set you up for success, set up systems to, um, for me, my most recent example, I was prepping a little bit for this interview yesterday. And it was, it was funny because I was typing this stuff out about these topics and I was like, all right, it's five fifteen. Like you need to go get your kids from daycare. And, uh, and I was like, I'm doing, you know, I do it all the time where I'm like, okay, you're, I want to be getting her closer to five and, and that's okay. I don't have to beat myself up about that, but I can sit with that discomfort. And that's something that, um, we're not really taught. We're not taught to normalize discomfort. Um, and to, to look at these things. And, and many times we need support with that too. And that's what helps with, with shame and reducing this, the difficulty of this and, you know, being in communities that help with that, right? Not just doing it on our own. Yeah. And I think that also highlights the dangers of perfectionism and the dangers of this all or nothing thinking that we feel like, okay, once we get that habit, then we should be able to do it 100% of the time, no fail, and nothing's going to go wrong Mm -hmm. because it will. (laughs) And then when it does, we feel like, all right, well, I guess that doesn't work. So I'm just going to quit and never do it again. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that growth mindset, the focus on progress rather than perfection, and also I like to talk about life editing because sometimes things do slip and you feel like it starts slipping and everything starts slipping and all right, let's sit down. What do we want to work on? What do we want to make space for? What's not working for us anymore that we want to stop doing? And how can we help each other here in this family together reach our goals together? So mm-hmm. at the end, it's very uncomfortable to not be able to do it and not be able to make changes quickly when you want to, because I think also as humans, we're very impatient and we want things to happen like overnight when that's usually not the case. Right. And we're sold that message. Like if you do it right, you'll get there. And it's like, there is no there. (laughs) You're never there. You're always growing. That's the cool thing about being a human. And, but we're sold just follow these steps and get this result and it's marketing and it's, you know, money and systems trying to sell products and it's just not the way it works. Yeah. (laughs) I wish it was. And really all of it's arbitrary, right? (laughs) Because everything we choose, time is arbitrary, the values we choose. So really, I think when we reframe it, just like you said, there is no there. We're not just going to achieve some place and then we're done. You know, there's always yeah. going to be something, something else to experience, something else to explore in this evolution of our lives and our thinking. So that that's what makes life beautiful if we're able to embrace it, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
What do you mean by the psychology of wellness? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I use that to describe my business because the psychology of eating and weight behavior doesn't really sound, uh, doesn't sound cool. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> but wellness, you know, the wellness industry has been a little bit co-opted, right? But like wellness, it, it means this broad, really holistic health. Again, it's sort of these, these catch-all terms that we hear, but um, it means so much more than what, how you're moving and what you're eating, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, if we make this, I keep making, about to make this circle of, you know, we make a pie chart, if you will, of like what makes up your, your health or, and certainly the weight is like, I can say like, I guess we can throw it in there if you want to, but it's such this tiny little dot. And then even eating and exercise habits go into there too, but they might be a lot smaller than you're making it out to be. So, so Mm -hmm. often we have to broaden that scope and look at like, what is the root cause that might be problematic for you in your life? And, and very often the underlooked factors are, if I had to pick the top three, it's uh, sleep. Um, I said sleep first, but really I'd say the most one important one is stress, uh, social relationships. Those are the top two. And then sleep falls into that. I think it's just very intimately related. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. But so often we're not thinking about that. And, and that might be the most important thing to look at before you even look at your habits. And maybe it depends on the person, right? Yes. But we need to broaden that, that scope of what we're examining because diet culture in particular tells you it's calories in calories out you know it's a simple formula and uh Mm -hmm. that's just not true 
Yes. And just like you were talking about earlier, a lot of well-being and wellness is how we feel. So even if you have the quote perfect body and you have it all together as a mom or whatever, and you're perfect, but you're feeling awful every day and so stressed and like you're just hanging on this precipice. Have you seen the movie Encanto yet? Uh, I've seen it about seven times. (laughs) (laughs) Only seven? Okay. (laughs) I mean... I don't watch the whole thing. My daughter is obsessed. She's four. <laughs> the the song Pressure. I mean, of course, the music is amazing in that movie. It's so good. But that song Pressure, the first time I heard it, I literally started crying because I yeah. identified it, ide- identified with it so much. Mm. That feeling that you're you're trying to do everything for everybody and, and just keep it all together with a smile on your face and you're not going to break. And so many of us feel that way, but that's not well-being, you know, like having more peace and more calm. And so sometimes getting down into your emotions, how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis, which of course is not going to be happy all the time. That's not what life is, I think Mm -hmm. can be very helpful. But that leads us into my next question is, how can becoming more aware of your emotions, particularly fear, sadness, loss, help us remain motivated to prioritize our health and well-being? Yeah. So um, I will, I'll use an example uh, for myself that I've shared a little bit more recently because I think it's somewhat telling. So I think that we are emotional beings motivated by feeling an emotion, not by logical thought, right? So that's the first thing to just know. That's why it's valuable. But I think it's really important often to figure out what we really value and where we're missing the mark. We have to look at questions like, what are you afraid will happen if you don't make a change in this area, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, an example, just this was most recently, the time that this happened to me was last year. So I'm a brand new entrepreneur. I've been doing it for about a year now. um, And I kind of thought like, oh, I'm working for myself. If I work from home, like I'm going to, this is going to be great. Like I'm going to have great healthy habits and like life's just going to be amazing. Right. But it's a huge shift, a huge change. And I struggled with implementing like a new exercise routine. And like, I just struggled with, um, continuing like to cook often and, and things like that. And, um, I was working a lot last year. I think it was last spring and, I was um, just, uh, one of the things that happened for our family is that um, we found out a little while after my daughter was born, so it's been several years now that my husband's family has Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic mutation that greatly increases risk for cancer, and um, and then I also had just like a basal cell carcinoma cancer, um, which is a huge deal, but the word cancer is very uh, scary for many people. Um, And in fact, since then, I've had a lot of people in my life struggling. And that fear is hard to sit with. I don't want to think about it, right? Um, But I was in the midst of overworking and I was talking about these topics, right? And I was not taking time to reflect. I wasn't taking time to exercise as much as I would have liked. And, And just taking that time and space to sit and feel, and I forget what it was. Actually, I think it was this, um, you know, we can just take the space, but sometimes if we don't take the space, something will happen in our life that makes us have to look at that. So it was um, some little thing on my head that I was like, you have, your cancer came back or something. And I started really going down a spiral. And then I started going down a kind of fear spiral of like, 
you're not doing what you said you're going to do. You're not taking care of your prioritizing your health. You're not showing up for the kids you the way you want to. And it was really painful. And I, I stopped. I kind of reflected on that. Um, and I've, you know, been doing this work personally for a while now. So it's not as uncomfortable as it used to be. But I was able to stop and be like, okay, like some things need to change. And um, I mean, part of my solution was I joined kind of a business training that helped me to like work smarter, not harder and like achieve the balance that I was looking for. And it's been about a year and like I've gradually made progress towards that goal of working less and I still struggle with it. But that that to avoid that fear and also a lot of shame, a lot of shame of like you're not showing up as the mom you want to. Um, you're you're not you're a workaholic mom and you're not present with your kids, all these shame stories. But I had to look at that and say, okay, like that is really painful. It's really uncomfortable, but it was really powerful. And it's what I needed to make a change quicker as opposed to continuing that work pattern for longer. So we have to look at the pain so that we can make the changes sooner that let lead us to live the lives ideally, you know, without regret. We want to reach whenever the end of our life comes. We want to be able to look back and say, yeah, I feel really good about what I was doing. And um, that's a good litmus test too. So that when we think about values clarification, that's one of the ways that an acceptance and commitment therapy, they encourage you to do that, which is attending your own funeral exercise. It sounds um, kind of intense, right? But that's because it's powerful. It's, it's mm -hmm. a valuable exercise to say, how do I want to be showing up? How would people be talking about me at my funeral? How do I want them to be talking about me? Um, you know, we don't usually, we don't want to have our, how would I, how, how do I want my kids to remember how I was? I was always on the computer and working all the time and distracted. No, I was with them. I was there. I was taking care of myself and I was laughing at their silliness. Right. Um, so it's, these are emotional topics. Um, I feel good about the progress I've made, but as I mentioned yesterday, like, it's something I'm still working on all of the time and I'll probably always still work on because I'm pursuing something I feel very passionate about and I'm being a mom to these humans who are only this age once. And uh, of course, there's other people in my life that I care deeply about too, but kids really, uh, <laughs> they're good motivators to to look at the things that we don't always want to look at. Yeah. And just like you referred to, whenever we're exploring these emotions, I think that it can be valuable to get outside help because yes. one of the things that can happen is it's too painful. So we completely ignore it and try to hide from it and we compartmentalize it. So it's like, boop, going to lock it away. It doesn't exist. Or we can do the opposite where we're overwhelmed by it. We get anxiety or we get depressed and then we feel completely helpless. So we can go to these extremes when we're trying to navigate our emotions and we're still going to be ineffective to reach our goals and align with our values. So if you feel like you get stuck in those patterns, then it might be helpful to seek out help, whether it's a therapist, a psychologist or a coach or somebody like that, that can help you because sometimes it's easier for somebody outside of you to help you navigate your emotions and help guide you through that than doing it yourself, especially when it gets very, very polarized. I think parenting is one of the most 
emotional journeys ever. <laughs> you know? It's just yes. like, it's I literally the hardest job I've had in my life. And I don't feel like I'm great at it a lot of the times, but I think that it, it is helpful. I've been to therapy for many years off and on, and oh, it's a godsend to have that, mm-hmm. have somebody outside of me be able to help me reflect the truth, but also do it in a way that's healthy and that I don't just spiral down into this place of helplessness. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, and we all like, yeah, sometimes you can, like I said, I've been doing this work for a while. I mean, I definitely still go to therapy as needed, depending on what that looks like. And sometimes I can work through it alone. A lot of times I'm working through it with a trusted friend and I mm-hmm. am very grateful to have amazing human beings in my life. And many of them are therapists, which by the nature nice. of what I do. So that's always nice. But um, yeah, I, I think that that figuring out what level you need and like if you you can't overdo it with support, right? Like. Yes if you do, that's pretty unlikely to happen. So yeah, lovely. Well, I'd love to know what habit you're most proud of. Yeah. So I was debating which one, um, because I just mentioned, I, I I would say if I had to say what I'm most proud of, it's got to be the shifts that I've made in, in my work-life balance that I just mentioned. Um, that's, it's crucial. It's everything (laughs) to me is not, regretting pursuing this dream of mine and being able to be present for my kids while they are the age that they are. Um, and I'm not perfect with it and I'm always working on it, but, um, prioritizing my well-being as, as I pursue these things. And so I can be present for them. And, um, I am very proud of how much less I am working compared to that last spring that I just mentioned. Um, it's, it's been a systematic process and I've got a lot of support, um, with a, basically business coaching and, and friends. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And it's very admirable. And I think a lot of us need help in that area. One of my best friends is actually a life coach and we were kind of going through some little thought experiments and things like that, because I'm also a business owner and entrepreneur. And I feel like when we're our own boss, I love it. And it's hard for me to ever want to give that up of being my own boss, but we're like the hardest bosses like on the planet. And I remember her asking me, do you think if you worked for somebody else, they would make you work as hard as you expect yourself to work? And I'm like, no, but still, I still want to work for myself. (laughs) Yes. So it's hard. It's a hard balance. The doing is never done. There's always more to do. And it's very tempting because I know you and I both really enjoy what we do. And um, that's a wonderful privilege that not everyone has. And yet, we got to keep it in check, I think. At least I know I do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What do you wish more people knew? I I wish more people understood that the fear of showing your authentic, true self is so normal. And yet it's so, so freeing to be able to be yourself in whatever setting that you're in. And um, I kind of like was more open with my personal journey with disordered eating for many years. Um, and then only recently, especially with the podcast now, it's like all over just anyone who wants to learn that about me could. Um, and I was very fearful of like professionally being viewed, um, 
as unprofessional or, you know, psychologists aren't really taught to talk about themselves. Uh, and certainly I don't talk about myself much in therapy, but I, it's a different platform. Um, and it's just really freeing. And I, I hope people can know that like, yes, it's scary. Um, yes, you have to learn to do vulnerability in, in the right way, meaning it's a skill. It's not just like spill your guts and hope someone takes care of you, which is a normal desire, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's learning to build that trust over time and be your, your true self is, um, the best gift you can give to yourself. And, uh, I've really enjoyed be being more myself personally and professionally, um, lately. It's been really fun. Uh, that's so beautifully said. I love it. Authenticity is actually one of my highest values. So whenever I do my values review every year or so, that always comes up high because it's hard for me not to be authentic. It requires a lot of work for me. And and it's just kind of like you lose yourself and you don't know who, who you're supposed to be and it's very confusing. But I agree that especially when I feel very emotional, for me, there's that temptation to just like spill it all and just hope somebody scoops me up and, and takes <laughs> yes. care of me. But you have to learn over time how to do that. And that's where, where therapy comes in. Really yeah, great. That's a good place to start <laughs> so, with. That is totally appropriate there. Exactly. Yes. That's the place there. to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, start there and then gradually, you know, figuring out how you want to be vulnerable in your current relationships. Because that's in many ways the scarier one, right? We're yes. more fearful. We're not always fearful of a therapist. We can just find another therapist, right? But um, our people in our life, thats it's its scary. I'm a big Brene Brown fan and her work on vulnerability yes. is a guidepost oh. for me, for sure. Absolutely. Well, this has been really great. I have one last question for you, for our listeners. But before we get to that last question, I would love if you told us what services you offer and how listeners can connect with you. Yeah. So I, I, first and foremost, I, I have to mention my podcast cause I love it so much. It's been, um, about a year of doing it. I just kind of recorded several of the, um, year and beyond episodes. So it's called motivation made easy body respect, true health, wherever you get podcasts. Um, we bring on amazing experts such as Dr. Yami, most recently <laughs> experts in medicine, nutrition, psychology, and really just different. I really try to bring on different voices, um, to bring on different perspectives, all geared towards helping you really re- reclaim your relationship with food. And um, really, I, I want to help more people live a life filled with what they want. Courage, mm-hmm. connection is values of mine. Um, and so living more in, in line with that. So I would highly recommend they check that out. Um, in terms of services, I have a, I do have a one-on-one teletherapy practice um, if you're in the state of Michigan. Um, and then I have uh, the Body Respect program is my six-month group coaching program that really, um, again, it's less about a certain eating style, but more about how you think and feel about it, moving from that external shame-based motivation towards this empowered um, relationship with food and your body. Um, so you can check all of that out at my website, drshawnhondorp.com. Um, and yeah, I have a lot of free resources. If you're wanting to dig deeper on this, like values, I actually kind of similar to you, like just, I know you have a bunch of free stuff. I have way too many free things on my, my website. So if you go to my website, click free stuff. Um, and then there's a kind of a three-step guide to guide you through 
clarifying what you really want and and you'll create like one sentence to help you motivate now to consistently prioritize your health so that's all all there as well so yeah i love it yeah and i was actually going to make a comment that we live in a day and age where there's so many free resources so this is a great time. If you feel like you're struggling with any of these things, if you really like Sean's style, check out her resources and then that'll inform you. If you feel like you need that next level and you're not in the state of Michigan, join her group, listen to her podcast. There's so many resources out there for you. You just have to go out and get them. So thank you so much for yeah. creating all of that because I know it's helped so many people. Yeah, thank you. Well, last question course this is always difficult but what would be your number one tip for busy mothers that want to live a healthier lifestyle but feel overwhelmed and don't know where to start so you you kind of took my answer earlier but I'm still gonna say it because I think it's crucial right um find I would say like supportive accountability um or however we want to think about that, um, support and or accountability, they're kind of hand in hand, right? But like you were saying, really, there's so many different ways to get this now. Um, so this absolutely could be a therapist, a counselor, a trained professional. Um, it could be, there's a lot of coaches, health coaches. Yeah, you have to parse out whose method works best for you and you have to figure out, you know, all of that. But um, it could be a, a friend or family member, it depends, obviously. But I think just starting to, Pick someone you trust and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this, kind of having some shame about it, if that's true, right? And what would be really helpful to me is X thing. I would love if you can go on a walk with me or um, just help me reflect on how I'm feeling more consistently or whatever thing would be helpful. But um, of course, you know, you are worth investing in. Hopefully it's, you know, access to mental health is not always the privilege everyone has, but if that's something that you can make time and money for, even just looking at, you know, it's, it's so worth it. And I think a lot of us have a hard time investing in ourselves in that way, but um, that support is, is huge. Yes. Oh, that's so important. Thank you so much for giving us that tip because especially now it's so needed coming off, hopefully coming off of this pandemic soon, (laughs) you know, where we're spending more time with each other. I think we're realizing how much we missed it and how isolated we've been and how it's felt hard to feel like we can reach out to people because we feel like everybody's busy and it's a burden, but that's the way we take care of ourselves. And I think also when we reach out to other people, we're also helping them too. It's a mutual thing, you know? So- Don't feel like, oh, I'm just being this burden. No, if they're your friend, of course, if it's a professional, there's an exchange there as well. But just like Sean was saying earlier, that courage and that vulnerability, you know, Mm -hmm. practicing courage and vulnerability to reaching out, getting your needs met so that you can get to that vision of where you want to be in your life, how you want to feel on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I will say that like most, that's that fear. Um, I always quote Brene Brown. So vulnerability is weakness in me and courage in you. And we always appreciate it. And we're always, as long as you're not making the person solve your pain, most people are going to appreciate it. They're going to be honored. Like when my friends reach out to me and like spill what they're really feeling, I am truly honored. Um, yes. And I, that's almost always the way people feel. Yeah. 
Oh, so beautiful. Well, Dr. Sean Hondorp, thank you so much for joining us on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Really appreciate this conversation. I know it's going to touch a lot of people. So thank you for all of the work that you do. I'll make sure that we put all the links in the show notes so that people can find you easily. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much. Did you love that conversation? I thought it was so good. I loved the themes of autonomy, of connection, of belonging. And I love how she explained the self-determination theory and our three basic human needs, but also this difference between the intrinsic and the extrinsic motivation. I hope that that helped you and gave you some great tips going forward We talked a lot about parenting and about motherhood, and I know that a lot of you out there can relate to that. So remember, it's not about perfection. Do the best you can, and then every once in a while, reassess. How am I doing? What are things that I feel like I could do better on or I wanna do better on? What are some things that maybe don't serve me anymore and I wanna let go of? So if you love this conversation, check out Sean's links, all of her free materials, her group if you want to. And Veggie Lover, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.